Grace and peace to you all and welcome in the name of the Lord. You are welcome here if you are feeling the love of this season or if love seems a little lacking in our world. You are welcome if you are a lifelong member or if this is your very first time here. You are welcome here no matter who you love, what you look like or where you live, no matter who you are or where you are in life's journey, you are welcome here. We're so glad that you've come. Let us worship God. The first reading this morning is from the book of Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent you before Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand of rams, with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body, and the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Here ends the first reading. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give them your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. And Jesus continued, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, who makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? 
And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here ends the reading. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your eyes. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Thursday is Valentine's Day, so love is in the air, at least hypothetically. But it's a particular kind of love, isn't it? It's a romantic love that's often pretty sentimental. It's about roses and hearts and good feelings. So this morning, I want to talk about a different kind of love. Alex and I had a theology professor in seminary named Miroslav Volf. Professor Volf was a native of Croatia, And in the early 90s, while he was studying for his doctorate in Germany, there was a brutal war back home that many of you probably remember between the Serbs and the Croats. Serbian forces slaughtered thousands of his people during an attempted ethnic cleansing. During a theology lecture at university, Wolf was discussing Jesus' words from the passage I just read. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And one of his mentors, one of his professors, asked him, can you love the Serbs who are systematically killing your people right now? This question haunted him. He spent so much time agonizing over this question that he ended up writing a whole book about it. It's called Exclusion and Embrace, and it is one of the finest theological tomes of our time It's an incredibly important book in the world of theology. As a side note, it's also an incredibly important book in my personal life because reading this book by Miroslav Wolf was one of the reasons that Alex decided to attend Yale. So that's where we met. I'm very grateful to Miroslav for his book. All joking aside, this book has had a significant impact on how people think about Christian ethics and about the theology of reconciliation in particular. In his book, Wolf argues that if we do not love our enemies, even the ones who are literally killing us, then violence will just beget more violence, as the oppressed eventually rise up, take control, and enact revenge. We have to love our enemies, he says, if we ever want to stop the cycle and create lasting peace. Five years ago, at my installation service right here, The Reverend Mary Ludy stood in this pulpit and she preached on love. Many of you were there. She said, love is complicated and hard. It's not just a lurch of the heart or a tingling at the back of the brain. It's a decision, a practice, a habit, a way of life. She actually repeated that last part just to make sure we heard it. Love is a decision, a practice, a habit a way of life. Tonight we are hosting this event on love as a public ethic, and I I hope you will come. We're going to hear from Valerie Kaur about how she has come to a similar conclusion as my former professor, Miroslav Wolf. We must love even our enemies if anything is going to change in our culture. Kaur describes this love as a practice of intentionally wondering and empathizing with others, even those we disagree with vehemently. 
even those that may be harming us, so that we can uphold their dignity and worth no matter how much we disagree with them or their actions. And that is not easy. But it is possible. I know it's possible because if Wolf can practice loving the Serbs who were killing his people, and Kor can practice loving the man who murdered her uncle, then we can practice it too. And in fact, our faith demands that we do. This kind of love is at the heart of the laws and our scripture. This kind of love is not a suggestion. It is a command of our God. This love is not a feeling. It is an active way of living, intentional, and something we have to practice again and fail and practice again and again. Choosing to take this kind of love on as our daily practice, as the habit we are ever striving to instill in our hearts, as the goal toward which we are working, this is what it means to live a Christian life. But how do we do it? How do we do it? Our first reading for today from the prophet Micah gives us a hint. It is set up, it's a little hard to follow, and Sue, God bless you, you did a great job with all those names. It's her last time reading as a deacon, and I gave her like the hardest list of names. But it's set up as a, uh, a legal case. God calls the people of Israel into a trial setting and asks, why have they turned from him? Why have they broken their promises and failed to follow the laws that he gave them? It is an indictment against the people. And God reminds his people of his faithfulness to them, his mercy, his love, his redemption. And in turn, God's people say, how can we make it right? How can we make it right with God? And so they begin this litany of gifts. Should we bring you burnt offerings? Should we bring you rams? This is how worship happened, you know, 5,000 years ago, right? People brought burnt offerings to the altar. And then they start to get very hyperbolic. Shall we bring you 10,000 rams? Shall we bring you 10,000, what is it, jugs of oil, right? So it just gets bigger and bigger in quantity. And then the, the climax is, shall, shall we give you our firstborn child? Shall we, shall we offer up our child, right? What, what will make it right with God? And God says, no, I don't want offerings. I don't want expensive gifts, no matter how big or sacrificial. What I desire from my people is what I have always desired from my people. I have told you, O mortal, what is good. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. The prophet Micah reminds the people that God has already told them the way to do it. It is this code of behavior, a way of being in relationship within a community, grounded in love, care for the vulnerable, lifting up the oppressed, welcoming the foreigner, tending to the poor. This is what a beloved community is. God doesn't want empty offerings. He wants commitment to this way of being, this way of acting in the world. And this threefold ethic that Micah lays out as a recipe, so to speak, for the kind of beloved community that God calls us to is one that's very intentional. First, do justice. Justice means equal treatment for all people. Enshrined in the laws of Israel is a particular concern to balance out inequalities in social life. For example, the law states that farmers do not harvest around the edges of their fields 
or harvest the food that drops to the ground because it's to be left for people struggling with poverty or foreigners who have come into the land and have no way uh, to work. Leave these fruits for the poor and the foreigner. The law also commanded the people to pay their laborers fairly and promptly. You are not allowed to wait till the next day to pay and to take particular care of the most vulnerable members of society, widows and orphans, those with disabilities, the poor, the sick, resident aliens. The onus is on those with more power, with more resources, to use what they have to help the people in their community who lack equal access or equal rights or equal resources. And similarly, those with power are commanded to stand up to the systems or the people who perpetuate injustice against others. This is what it means to do justice. But the second thing God commands here is that we love kindness. Now, this word in Hebrew, chesed, is very hard to translate. It's often translated as loving kindness, all one word, because they have so much trouble finding an English word that approximates what that word really meant. Sometimes it's translated mercy. But within that word is this deep and intentional caring for the needs of all people, regardless of who they are or what they have done. Built into that meaning is a particular love and kindness to those who are poor or in need or suffering, but also mercy, because it contains this idea of forgiveness in it, of granting grace to those in community, of assuming that other people's intentions are good, and starting from there. As God has forgiven us, so we must choose the path of forgiveness and reconciliation, not holding grudges, not desiring retribution. It is this element of loving kindness and mercy that Jesus points to in our gospel reading. It's easy to love people who love you, he says. It's much harder to love those we dislike, or even those who have done our community's harm. And yet this is what God calls us to. The final element in the good and righteous life, Micah reminds us, is the command to walk humbly with our God. And I think that final element holds the first two together. If we are self-righteous and think that we are somehow better than others, then we may be tempted to make ourselves the only arbiters of justice. If we lack self-awareness of our own flaws and weakness, our own moral shortcomings, then we may struggle to offer mercy and love. But if we begin from a place of humility, then striving for equity and mercy in the community becomes possible. And notice that the command here is to walk humbly, not just be humble. There is an acknowledgement of both intention, committing to moving forward, and that we're not there yet, right? It's an ongoing process, an active movement toward the kind of life that God calls us to. It's where we get that phrase, walking the walk. We have to walk the walk, and we have to keep walking the walk. And when these three elements come together, doing justice and loving mercy and kindness and walking humbly, they allow us to rec recognize the dignity and worth of every human being, every individual, to see their humanness, to see that we are part of the same human family. And by choosing these habits, we are choosing the way of love, which is to say living with a deep concern for the well-being of others even our enemies. Now, this doesn't mean we become doormats or that we must agree with or support everyone on everything. That's not possible. In fact, the call to do justice demands that we stand against hateful actions or cruel policies. 
Love is not permissiveness. But it does mean that even when we disagree with people's ideas or actions, we continue to treat them like people. We don't dehumanize them. We don't deprive them of things they need. We don't try to enact revenge or retaliation on them. We hear them out. We give them the benefit of the doubt. We choose grace. We don't assume that we know more than they do. We empathize. We wonder. These are chorus words. We wonder about our neighbors. We wonder even about our enemies. What is it like to be them? We cultivate compassion. And this is the kind of practice, the habits that lead us on the path to loving not just the easy ones, but the hard ones. And we've all got them. We've got them in our families. We've got them in our neighborhoods. We've got them in the political system. We've got people that are hard to love. Sometimes it seems really tempting to dismiss Jesus' call to love our enemies as naive and to dismiss the whole ethic of justice, mercy, humility as utopian and unrealistic. Especially when we get to that final line of our reading. Did you hear it? Be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, I have some good news. It's a terrible translation. (laughs) The word in Greek means bringing to completion, bringing to wholeness. Again, there's that sense of process, right? Not be perfect, great, glad we had this talk, now you're going to be perfect, right? It's the root word of the word is about your goal. What are you heading for? right? The command is that we are to move toward the intended goal of beloved community. Just as God is working to move all things toward his intended beloved community, right? God is trying to bring our world into that wholeness, and we have a choice to participate in it. For those of us in the Christian faith, this is not an option. It's an obligation, It's a command from our God. And we cannot dismiss it as impossible or naive. I say again, if Miroslav Volf can find it in his heart to commit to loving the Serbs who killed his people, and Valerie Kaur can find it in her heart to commit to loving even the man who killed her uncle, then that should give us some hope. This way of life is not only possible, It is happening. It's happening right now. People are making that choice, that very difficult choice. My friends, I know that when you turn on the news, you are not seeing much love. I know that if we were to describe the public ethic of our time, it would likely not even include the word love. We have fallen into this zero-sum game mentality, a culture of scarcity. We act as if there is not enough to go around, that any good for the other is a loss for me. Increasingly, our culture neglects the call to justice and equity and instead focuses on preserving our own corner of power and safety and wealth. Our society has forgotten the call to mercy, instead embracing spite, delighting in unkindness, and working to dehumanize our opponents to the point that any disagreement becomes an excuse for cruelty and a cause for retribution instead of concern for the other. But what is going on in the nation or the broader culture does not have to dictate who and how we are in the world. 
As people of faith, we owe our allegiance to a higher power, the power of our God, who delights in goodness, who longs for equity for all people, who envisions a beloved community committed to mercy and to walking humbly with our God. We have a choice. It is 2020, and there is no indication that the culture out there is growing any less divided or spiteful. So we have a choice, as Professor Wolf had a choice, to let it pull us into the endless cycle of anger and resentment and violence and fear, or to choose a different way, as he chose a different way. Miroslav Wolf is not a perfect man, but he committed his life to walk the walk toward reconciliation and love, to champion love in the face of hatred, humanity in the face of cruelty, and forgiveness in the face of endless war. So we know it's possible, but it takes practice. We must practice this way of love in the small moments, here with each other, at our dinner tables, at our community gatherings. We must practice this love in our speech, in our movement, in the model we set for our children and our grandchildren, they are watching, I promise you, and some of them have freakishly good memories. We must practice in the small ways so that we will be prepared when the big case comes, so we'll be prepared in all cases to follow the way that our God calls us to, because he has told us, my friends, what is good and what is required of us to do justice, to love kindness, mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you could visit our website, www.ucclittlecompton.org. And if you'd like to show some appreciation for what you've heard today, we invite you to please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support our ministry by clicking the donate link in the show notes. The tradition in our church is to end every service with this simple prayer. God be with you till we meet again. By God's counsels, God uphold you. With his sheep securely fold you. God be with you till we meet again. Go in peace.